Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.D.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome once again, everyone, to Revolution. Thank you for listening. And as we always do, we start out our show with a round table, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald, John Caracella, and Deb Caracella. Good morning. And today we're going to talk about something that is based on a phrase that we're all extremely familiar with, uh, and it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Um, And that phrase is, time is money. So I would be curious to hear from my co-hosts and for you listening to also think about this. Um, One, when we say time is money, do you agree with that statement? Do you think that that's a statement that is true? Or do you think that that is conflating two things that really shouldn't be and because we tend to now live by that statement almost in our society, that we are doing ourselves a disservice and perhaps even harm by thinking that that statement has some sort of truth to it. Um, I'd also be curious what you think of in terms of time, what it is, if there is a difference between time in the sense of how we measure it with clocks and that kind of thing versus time in terms of how our internal self works and moves through life, and if there is a difference there, how that might coincide with or conflict with the idea that time is money. So I will turn to my co-hosts, virtually speaking, and ask them what it is they think when they hear that phrase, time is money. Do you think that's a true statement? Do you think that's a statement that has gotten out of proportion, has caused harm, or do you think that that is something that is pretty valid, and that's how we can kind of approach how we live our life. Uh, I see. I think I think the phrase is very truncated. It's a it's a very, I guess, facile interpretation of of what time is, uh, and it doesn't really illuminate very clearly what money is. I think one of the a big misunderstanding we have in our culture is what actually what money is. Money is is a storage medium for value, for things we value, for effort we have expended, for resources that uh, we, we trade in. And, you know, it, it has limitations. It's not a perfect medium for storing value. It's great for transferring value, but can only transfer value that can be effectively stored in money. So, for example, love has a lot of value, but it's very difficult to store love in money. Time is another one of these things. Time has tremendous value, but it's not very easy to store in money. So I think when we say time is money, we're, I don't think we're looking at either one of those things clearly at all. Now, you know, from a, from a very practical uh, root chakra kind of 
material world kind of thing, sure. Uh, if you're spending, if you're spending or applying or using your time in a particular way, you either are or are not converting some aspect of it into money. Uh, and so, and you only have 24 hours a day. So if you want to convert something into money, then you have to make sure that you're applying time, at least in some measure, to facilitate that in, in happening. But I think it's uh, I think it's a very broken way of looking at things. Hi, see, when I read Time is Money, for me, I couldn't make a gel. So I have to add, Time is Money for me is a great big no. So then I went to, well, what is time for me? So what came in was time is inner peace. And inner peace doesn't seem to register for me in the quantitative. So that's my relationship. And the other thing I realized is that I feel a little bit of outside of time and money. So that was a benchmark in my own personal development that I hadn't even recognized before you had suggested this topic. So thank you for that. When you say, Mildred Lynn, that you're a little bit outside of time and money, can you, can you elaborate on that? That's an interesting statement. As, as all my statements, is that what you were going to say, Jack? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <Just teasing. laughs> well, what I read is time is money. To me, it didn't, as I said, it didn't gel. It just, it didn't stick. It didn't go inside of me. So I had to look at, well, what is time? Time to me is something that's non-quantifiable. Uh, it's an essence. It's a quality. So I don't seem to be in the rat race, or I don't seem to be, I, here it is, I don't have thoughts about time, and I don't have thoughts about money. I do have thoughts about inner peace. And in the context of time, looking at being present and focused, and if I'm going through the day and I find that I may be getting out of the flow, I may accept it in the terms of, well, I'm going to take the time to rebreathe and reset myself. But that's it. So, so you, you are, relatively speaking, uh, either on or lightly scheduled. Yes, I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's how I've designed things. But it doesn't mean that I don't, because I don't, it doesn't mean that I'm not fully active, fully engaged, hardworking, disciplined, I'm very active in all those areas. But so that's a, so that's a good lesson. It's a it's a good um, example for people that you can be highly productive and motivated and passionate and not be quantitatively trapped in the time domain. Quant quantitatively driven. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Well, I find that I uh, that the term "time is money" to me makes sense from the point of view is uh, that I feel that time is a precious thing and money is a value and money we, we equate money with value and and a, a sense of preciousness um, so from for me it's that's a, a truth for me I think I understand the phrase time is money from that perspective um, I like time very much. I appreciate time very much. I hold it in very high regard and value. My time is ex 
extremely precious to me and how I'm able to use my time and where I devote my energies during my time are very important. And money is not that important to me except that it allows me to do what I want. Without money, I don't have a home. Without money, I don't have food and, and clothing, and, and I'm not able to care for the people and the things that I feel I have a responsibility for and I have accepted a responsibility for. But otherwise, I don't care. Money doesn't do anything for me except as a means to an end. It allows me to spend my time and, and devote resources to those things that I feel um, that are important. And so... Um, I love what Mildred said about how she feels about the quantitativeness of, of time and she's outside of it. I also feel like I would, that would be my preferred way of being. I would love to be outside of the rat race, um, the, necess- the necessity of devoting uh, large blocks of your life essence to earning the money to have the resources to do the things that I feel are really more important and more critical to my happiness. Yeah, there is kind of a money can translate to a certain, a certain amount of money anyway, does translate to a certain amount of freedom and freedom translates to time. So, so I would say that, that there's a, a reasonable correlation between time and money that is arbitraged through the word freedom, so to speak. So freedom is the, tr- is the translator that makes time and money relate to me most, most understandably. But is it a dangerous thing to start to say that freedom only comes with a certain amount of money and we start to equate the feeling of freedom with how much money somebody has? Well, I think there's a really important thing here where it's not the case where the more money you have, the more free you are. And I think this has been shown to be true. More money doesn't make you happier, right? The, the, a certain amount of money necessary for you to live a, a life without material want, without deprivation, is really freeing, right? But beyond that, you know, the more money you have, you know, does not necessarily equate to the more freedom you have or the, the more happiness you have or the more fulfillment you have. But it seems that as people make or have more money, all they think about is then making more money and having more money, and they end up having less freedom because they end up working more hours or they end up putting more of their energy to having more money to acquire more things. And so it's the same in terms of time and money that we've created this sense that with money, people always think they never have enough. And whether they have very little money or whether they have billions of dollars, it seems everybody seems to operate from the same place of it's never enough. If I have a billion, suddenly I want two billion. If I have $20, suddenly I want 20 more dollars. And that has become how we approach time as well. And I think most people tend to operate with this idea of feeling as if they don't have enough time and therefore they are rushing around, they're stressed about not having enough time to do this or that or the other. They try to fit in 15 different things in a day in order to fill up and maximize the time that they do have. 
So why do you think that is? Why do, why do we feel like we don't have enough time? Let's say you had enough money. Let's say you, you were independently wealthy. Would you still feel like you didn't have enough time? My goal is to become independently wealthy, um, mostly because time is such a precious thing to me. And the ability to do with it as I to just satisfy all of my whims without the necessity of making sure that I've put aside the time that is required to make the money so that I can have food and so that I can have this. I don't want to deal with that. Um, I really don't. I want to be able to decide I'm going to take a class in photography and I'm going to do it for six weeks and I'm going to then when that's done, I'll go and I'll do something else or I'll take a trip and I'll just decide to be gone if I want to be gone for two weeks or whatever you know it is. If I did not need to worry about earning money, I would not be unhappy. And I would be stressed in the slightest. So if you accomplish a lot in terms of clock time, are you yes. able to to be satisfied with that and look at that and appreciate what you've accomplished? Or do you look at it and say, well, it'd be nice if I was getting paid for that. Because look at what I, you know, think of how much I could have made if I was getting paid for doing this, that, or the other that you accomplished during that time. No, unfortunately, that doesn't enter into my calculations. Um, I, what I do, I do for me. Well, I don't think that's and, unfortunate. <laughs> well, it's, it's unfortunate because I'm not getting paid and I need to generate an income and I don't know how to go about that. Well, at but, the you moment. See, but, but right there, what you did is you just negated the answer that you gave me. Because you, okay. you, you just said it's unfortunate that you're not getting paid for the things that you do during that time. So So... so we've come around to this idea that no matter what we do or how we fill our time or what we accomplish in a given amount of time, it's never enough unless we're getting paid, unless there is a monetary value that somehow can come from it. And I'm not saying that this is just you. I'm just saying I think that this is how time and money has gotten conflated and that we tend to, we no longer move through life because all we do is stress about how little or how much time we have and try to keep doing, doing, doing to fill all of the time because we equate whatever we're doing as somehow bringing us or moving us towards some sort of monetary reward or value. And I think that people have lost the ability to just live life and to just move through life because they're always worried about time. Am I late for this? Am I going to have enough time to get to that? Am I going to get this finished before I need to get on to the next thing? And then that goes right into feeling as if I'm never making enough money. So am I going to be able to do this in order to get to this thing to make more money? Am I going to be able to maximize the time? Am I going to be able to you know, wring as much value, reward, or return on my investment of time out of this in some material form? Hi, see, when I... I'm just going to interject. When I was reading the article that you had suggested we read to prepare for the round table, it was talking about inner time and external time. And I remember I had an, an illness I needed to get over, and it would probably take me about six to eight months to get over this illness. And my mind was in one time zone, and my body was in a completely different time zone. And I remember when I had that epiphany that I needed to sync up the two time zones in order to move forward, it, it was absolutely huge and it was life-changing. And from that, 
when you're talking about time and money and people never seem to have enough, I realized at that point that no matter what I did, um, no matter how much time I thought I needed or money I threw against this ailment, the body was going to heal in the body's time. They, and the body's time was based on nature's time. And because of that, that shifted how I started to view my time and how I started to view money. And when I looked at money, that seemed very limiting to me. And you were talking about getting value or satisfaction and identifying with that. So I started to expand the equation to when I'm investing my time doing this, you know, am I getting paid? Well, taking that off the pedestal and putting it in its proper place. Well, maybe I get fulfillment. Maybe I get sense of service. Maybe I get all sorts of different wonderful feelings. So I found that really helped, and that started walking me away from society's um, ever-prevalent time is money, time is money, time is money rat race thing. So that helped me. Now that we have run out of time for our roundtable discussion, (laughs) um, hopefully there has been something of value within this short amount of time, because we've got to rush along to get to the next segment in the show, you see. Um, But... Hopefully this has simply spurred the thought process, maybe even challenged us to rethink our relationship to both time and money and what those mean and if we have to always equate those versus being able to operate with seeing those as slightly different entities so that we operate slightly differently for each of them rather than the same way. And I will extend my gratitude to my co-hosts for joining me and engaging in this conversation, to Mildred Lynn McDonald. Thank you, Hi C. To John Carousella. Always a pleasure. And to Deb Carousella. You're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time, and I hope I haven't pulled you away from earning some money by <laughs> devoting the time to this. And stay tuned for the rest of the show. Uh, Coming up next is our astrology segment, and following that will be my conversation with Mejd Murad, who will be talking to us about the intersection of being in theater and spirituality and ritual with theater, uh, as well as a fascinating history for his own life, uh, growing up in a family that moved here from Iraq uh, and being a Muslim family, and he's gay in the Muslim family, and his brother having an honor killing out for him. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure you'll want to hear more. We'll be right back.
at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. Oh, my heart, taking me back to blue. I'm falling into my own senses. Another night, another day. It's better this way. Let the music play. Hello, lovelies. This is Tino Kalenda, your queer astrologer, with yet another monthly astrology update. So this month I'm going to be trying something a little bit different. For the last month or so I have actually been um, schooling myself and immersing myself in a new system of astrology known as the Ophiakin Zodiac, also known as the 13 Sign Zodiac. So starting early May, The intensity of April will continue to rage as the month dawns with a Venus opposition to Saturn, a Saturn-Jupiter sextile touching off a three-planet T-square, creating a great deal of tension at some sensitive points. It will proceed with a Mars station in Virgo, or if you're speaking in the Western Tropical Zodiac, that would be in Libra, starting May 7th through the 8th and echoing all month long until it goes direct again on May 20th. The T-square and Mars retrograde going direct finish out this lion of a month and give us an exuberant entree into June. So starting May 1st and lasting all the way till the 31st and potentially beyond, because as we all know, these things tend to reverberate, is the Jupiter-Saturn sextile, which I've called Science Fiction Dreams. This is a momentous opportunity now to utilize the creative energies that may have been languishing through April as they were commandeered to deal with some of the more challenging aspects of what April may have wrought. The square of the last month, besides welcoming in in some pressure, also has the potential upside of activating latent creativity that will only be heightened by this sextile touching off a tense T-square on May 5th. If there are any speculative ideas that need to be made into actual realities, now is the time. With Jupiter magnifying the basic prowess of the mind and mental processes, and Saturn working through the mechanics of practical reality, any dreams languishing in the imagination have an entry point now to collapse into lived reality. A great time to start any project with a far-reaching goal and find practical solutions and methods for bringing big ideas down to earth. A good time to search 
to research needed seed money or any other practical ideas for getting things off the ground. On the world scene, a focus may now be on practical solutions to pressing problems facing us collectively. Again, only if we choose it. May 3rd kicks off with a Venus-Saturn opposition, which I've called practical magic. Venus finds herself in her most exalted position, Pisces, this month. For those of you following the tropical system, that would be Aries, forming a direct opposition to Saturn, hanging out in the in late Ophiuchan Virgo. This speaks to the need to balance our relationships to forces greater than ourselves with practical realities. The more idealistic Venus is being asked to make concessions to practical reality and natural law. It calls for taking the more spiritual and idealistic aspects of our lives and bringing them into the purview of our everyday reality. A kind of practical philosophy is called for that unites the better angels of our nature with cold, sparkly realities. The writing is on the wall for all of our relationships. No longer can we gloss over less-than-ideal flaws and the practical day-to-day realities must be contended with. There was equal parts mutual agreement and commonality balanced by the reality that we have to work to live and deal with bodies that follow principles, making them less-than-ideal to work or live with. It is calling for the power of self-possession balanced by the need to self-transcend to see how we are united into a whole greater than ourselves. Collectively, it speaks to the impulse in us to unite as one world and one species and also deal with the practical and very real global crises that are converging on us. May 5th through 24th spells out the more tense Pluto-Uranus-Jupiter T-square, which definitely gives us some disruptive impulses and the impetus of innovate or die. Uranus here is the focus in this T-square, with Pluto exerting selective pressure to push evolution and Jupiter magnifying those pressures. The need to innovate to solve pressing ecological, technological, and social problems is more pertinent than it ever has been before. It is literally a a reiteration of adapt or die. In this case, it is innovate or die. This will be the energy of this transit and will continue to echo over the ensuing years as these pressures are pushing evolution into novel new directions. And, as we know, transits always leave faint traces or cosmic echoes which continue to reverberate through the cycles of time. To really benefit from this energy, it is highly recommended that if there are any pressing projects, details, or major loose ends, this would be the time to address them. Anything innovative or forward-thinking will be highlighted now and will require meeting intense evolutionary challenges. It's do or die. Ultimately, these particular pressures are pushing us all towards novelty and the power of negentropy and to a higher level of complexity in adapting to new prevailing conditions. On a world scale, it reflects the confluence of technologies of liberation with Neptune in Aquarius in mutual reception to Uranus in Pisces, and an urge towards increasing social merging, including the disillusion of entrenched social hierarchies, and the empowerment that comes through instantaneous communication modalities, 
all converging on the confluence in the native urge inside all of humanity to innovate and solve emerging collective problems in our evolutionary story. Which finally will bring us to May 11th and a Venus-Uranus conjunction via a Mars opposition. This is the second aspect to touch off the 10th T-square that defines much of May. Venus, who is symbolic of the human impulse to connect and love in mutual reciprocity with others, teams up with Uranus, symbolic of our ability to innovate and solve seemingly intractable problems. Unite in Pisces, the sign of merging with the primal first causes of the universe and seeing ourselves enmeshed into a whole, which unites us beyond distinctions as Pisces generally has a dissolving effect. These two forces aligning into one are then opposed by Mars in Virgo, stationing in retrograde motion. We may find ourselves obsessed by innovative fancies invading our relational capacities. New ways of approaching old relationship problems will be highlighted during this transit. It will not be a time ripe to act in new directions as Marge, Mars, which represents initiative, will be moving in retrograde motion. However, if there are lingering problems that remain edgy, this time will be a chance to redo and find a different approach to the same insolvent issue. The focus will be on finding practical and yet innovative ways which highlight the need to honor the self and one's native desires and also merge with another's desired focus for relationship. Collectively, it speaks to a need to utilize, utilize innovative approaches to old social problems with a focus on practical act, actions and the call to redo any past missteps that have led to lingering problems. Now, boys and girls, if you are curious as to wanting more resources and more information on what this new uh, concept of Ufayukan Zodiac means, please feel free to consult uh, this month's blog post uh, on my blog, which is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. So, boys and girls, that wraps up the juggernaut of May. It will be a fiery and fast-moving month with plenty of initiative, fiery and energetic start to summer, which will then lead into the lusty, fecund, and wildly sexual energies of midsummer. If you'd like to consult or get a chart reading from me, please feel free to contact me at calenda.tino at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A. Dot t-i-n-o at gmail.com. Also be sure to read this online at my blog, which is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. See you all at those this time, my lovelies, and enjoy the ride. Thanks to Tino Kalenda for once again his insight, wisdom, and guidance with his astrology update for this month. 
I will remind you that if you'd like to get a reading a little bit later in the show, you can get into the queue by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Enjoy the show. She's just a girl and she's on fire. fire. My revolutionary guest this month is actor, director, writer, and mask maker, Mejd Murad Al-Sheikh. Murad was born into a Chaldean family in Baghdad, Iraq. Mez's earliest memories are of the Gulf War before his family fled in secret to Jordan and then made their way to the United States. During his sophomore year in high school, Mez came out as gay but did not tell his parents because his brother threatened to kill him, a quote-unquote honor killing, if he did. While majoring in theater at UC Riverside in California, his parents put a yes on Proposition 8 sign on their lawn, which prompted him to come out to them, even as his brother once again threatened his life. Fear caused him to escape into sex, and while still in his early 20s, a man he trusted intentionally gave him HIV. Subsequent health complications caused him to have to leave and drop out of a professional training program in theater, and Mezd moved to Los Angeles. While living in Los Angeles, Mezd wrote a one-man show called Blood Fruit about his story of coming out to his family. The show was well-received and got accepted into the best of the Hollywood Fringe Festival. He returned to school and completed his theater degree, graduating in 2013. He then moved to San Francisco, where he currently resides, working in theater, preparing to bring his one-man show Blood Fruit to the stage once again, and is now starting to create masks that can be used for both theater and ritual purposes. The late Eddie Gutierrez, founder of the Unnamed Path spiritual tradition, became a friend, mentor, and brother to Mejd when he lived in Los Angeles supporting him in his coming out process and helping him get in touch with his spiritual side, eventually initiating him into the unnamed path, a shamanic path for men who love men. You can find out more about Mejd and his work with masks, as well as information on his one-man show Blood Fruit at www.artmask.com, which is spelled A-R-T-E-M-A-S-K-S dot com. So please help me in welcoming to the show today, revolutionary guest, Mejd Murad Al-Sheikh.
And welcome to the show, Mejd Murad. Have you ever had an introduction Thanks. like that? Not quite. I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> if you were on fire anymore, you'd be burning down San Francisco. Um, <laughs> Uh, now, of course, the first thing I must do is apologize because earlier in the show I referred to your family as being Muslim, which of course is not true. However, I think that that is probably a misperception that many people in this country in particular have that anyone coming from that part of the world is Muslim. Um, have you found that that has been an ongoing issue for you and then you have to explain that not everyone from there is Muslim, including yourself? I wouldn't call it an issue. I just, uh, but it definitely has come up. You know, a lot of people will go, wait, you're Iraqi. Oh, interesting. And then I have to say, like, because, you know, obviously you can't see me through, the, <laughs> through this radio show, but um, I, I look white and I sound white. So when they hear my name is Mej, they go, oh, that's weird. And then it leads into that. And I go, well, ethnically, I'm not Arab. I'm Chaldean, which is not Muslim. And, they, and it just blows their mind. And then you, pers of course, probably have to explain what it means to be Chaldean. Yeah, um, as my dad would say, we are the original Mesopotamians. We were the first Christians, and we speak the language of Jesus. Although my family <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> um, which would be Aramaic. Is that is that the language? It should be Aramaic. And there are still a lot of, um, uh, a lot of Chaldeans um, that do speak Aramaic, but my family only ever spoke Arabic. Ah. So as we heard in your introduction, I'd swear you've lived like the lifetime of three people in one lifetime, and you're only 27, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you say that some of your first memories are uh, from being in Baghdad and especially during the Gulf War. Um, do you remember a lot about that? And I'm, I'm also curious, based on what you do or don't remember, how do those memories, how do you think that they color who you are now and how you see the world at this point in your life? That's actually a really big question. So I'll, I'll try to do it justice. But I, to start, yes, I do remember um, tidbits. And because I was, uh, I was four when we left, all of the memories I have are all to do with anything that triggered, you know, flight or fight mode. So um, seeing a missile in the sky behind the clouds as my brother and I were feeding his chickens, um, you know, being woken up in the middle of the night to, to have to sit in the hallway in chairs and fighting with my sister over who got to sit next to my mom until we resolved that we would sit on either side of my mom. Um, playing the game of the card game War, I learned that then, and thinking that it felt you know, it felt haram, you know, like inappropriate and ashamed to to be playing something called war when there's a war going on outside, like little things like that. Um, and interestingly enough, in terms of how it's colored my life, I feel, and I've, I've done a lot of analyzing this, my Arabic is atrocious now. Like I, I barely speak it and I, I'm not super immersed in my, in my own culture. And um, all of that's starting to turn around lately, but um, the reason for that, I've figured, uh, at least, you know, in psychoanalyzing myself, is that, you know, being there was so scary and so, you know, alarming and just traumatizing that I feel like when I came to America, it 
it was this golden ticket, and all I wanted to do was be in this culture because it was safe, it was happy, it was friendly, there was lots of good foods, and, you know, everything was fine here. So I delved into this and wanted to forget the past, um, which now I'm obviously revisiting. So it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey in that. The other thing is I do sometimes respond um, with flight or fight mode to certain stimuli, like um, the, the vibration of a semi-truck driving by I, always causes me to turn my head, like, in, like as if I was a, you know, an animal, just like being alarmed by something, you know, lurking in the bushes. Um, the same thing with earthquakes, the same thing with helicopters, that, and that little whistling sound that airplanes make. That, those all really affect me. So I guess that's the, uh, that's the long version. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you said that, you know, initially what you wanted to do is just come here, just be American, and this was that safe place to forget everything. But you have kind of come back around to really not only reconnecting with, but almost in a way honoring your roots and where you came from, because you now are involved with a theater group that is specifically Middle Eastern oriented in terms of the productions that they do and the focus they have in bringing that culture to the United States um, or to whoever they perform to, I guess. Um, so how did you come back around to connecting with that past and being able to maybe kind of separate it out from not just war memories <clears throat> for that past, but the, the broader cultural connection? Well, um, in college, actually, in my senior year, my professor, Erich Jaffeberg, um, organized a conference called Staging the Middle East. So it had to do with any intersection of Middle Eastern and theater which at the time I hadn't even considered. Like, it, 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 I've kind of myself exoticized, like, that world and thought, you know, you know theater there, what? That, that exists. <laughs> and um, just because it's also very frowned upon, that, like, at least in my, in my immediate family, that I, that I do theater to wonder who actually does theater out there. But anyway, in this conference, it was really eye-opening, and um, a lot of the participants, were impressed with me because I was an undergraduate. They actually thought I was a graduate student for the work that I had done. I directed a show uh, called In the Heart of America that told the story of an American soldier, two American soldiers, one um, natively American, whatever that means, and, uh, and the other Palestinian American, and that they fall in love over in the, during the Gulf War in Iraq. And, um, and then when they're discovered to be gay, one of uh, the Palestinian one is killed by his fellow comrades and not um, not the white guy because and it's all about you know Orientalism and that kind of thing. And so I was talking about the show and people were impressed. And one of those ladies, um, Taranja Gazarian, came to me afterwards and, um, and introduced herself and gave me a card and said, if you're ever in the Bay Area and want to do some Middle Eastern theater, give me a call. <laughs> And she, she kind of followed me on Facebook for a while, and then when she learned that I was moving to San Francisco, immediately contacted me and said, hey, I have a project that I think you'd be great for, just come, and got me involved in the workshop for this production called The Fifth String uh, back in September, and um, we're actually just, uh, we went into performances last week for that show. 
so it's been interesting. That show is about a ninth-century oud player from from Baghdad who took the music of of the Middle East basically through North Africa to Cordoba, Spain, and so I'm learning about this historical guy from my own culture, from my own background, and at the same time I'm doing, I'm u- utilizing the skills that I have, which is like just so interesting to find that that's my that I'm at that intersection of Middle East and theater now that I learned about way back when. It's fascinating. And has that um, altered your relationship to your background coming from the Middle East and your cultural heritage um, to make you more, I don't know, aware of it, connected to it, want to research it more, or do you still feel like it's just something that's over there and it's just something you want to present here in America, but no interest to really delve into it otherwise? No, it really, it really has reconnected me. And, you know, even there are two Iraqis in my cast. Uh, actually, one's in the cast, one's um, a production assistant. And both of them have just, you know, because they speak my dialect of Arabic or close to, like I'm able to communicate with them because I don't know if you're familiar, but the dialects in the Middle East are, I mean, you could cross the street and be speaking like a totally different language if you're not familiar with it. So down to like using completely different words, a completely different vowel sounds, completely different consonants. Like in some dialects, you don't have the letter V. In some of them, you don't have the letter P. I mean, it's things like that. So to be able to communicate with them was one thing, but also um, to have them in an environment where I could be myself, openly gay, theater guy, um, and Iraqi ex-Catholic, and, you know, and to have that be okay <laughs> was, was so mind-blowing and very cathartic for me. And I don't think um, – I can't, I can't, you know, neglect those changes that I'm feeling in myself. And, and these two Iraqis that are in the production um, have mentioned that they have been back to Iraq. And I uh, – you know, I was concerned at first, like, oh, my gosh, you were going over there, like, after 9-11, like, during the war? Are you crazy? And they said, here's the thing. If you wait for um, – if you wait for it to be safe in Iraq before you go visit, you'll never go because it's just inherently a war-torn, you know, like dangerous place. So if you want to go, go. And for the first time in my life, I felt like, well, actually, maybe I do want to go. Maybe I do want to take a pilgrimage over there and, you know, connect to my roots um, even deeper. And, And that wouldn't have happened had it not been for this production company and, you know, kind of, my path returning to to that, and it had to do really with being available to to doing that kind of work. Like I could have said, no, I can't do Middle Eastern theater because Middle Eastern people are homophobic and they're never going to accept me. I could have said that, but I didn't. And the fact is, this company is completely accepting of everything that I am, which is really lovely. And so do you have a, a, a planned trip at this point, or it's just now something you're starting to consider doing? It's, it's more of a seed. You know, there's no set thing. So honestly, the logistics of, of taking the pilgrimage out there are, are very big. I would have to, like, I would have to really talk to my, to my parents about that kind of trip, what that would look like, because obviously I'd be staying with family out there. And 
I run the risk of, um, well, with the Internet and all the things that are on me about the Internet, it's, I'm very out and, you know, proud. But I would not necessarily want to be that in, in the Middle East as a tourist. <laughs> um, and, I mean, that's, that's something that I need to look into. Like, how dangerous is it for a, for a relatively publicly out there, you know, gay person to be in the Middle East and amongst my family, are they going to have issues if they, if they decide to like do a, a quick Google search because they could and you know, the internet is not that restricted so they can actually, you know, they could potentially see all the stuff that I do. Um, and I wouldn't want to run into any trouble while I was there as a result. So it's, uh, so I have to talk to my parents about that and, obviously save, save money to go and that kind of thing. But I think, I think it, could, it could work with the proper planning. Well, and of course I always trust my intuition. And when you were first mentioning about going back there and stuff, I immediately thought of, you know how cities have sister cities in other countries? That perhaps there is actually a way for you to go that might be a little safer or more conducive to doing it in a way that would be successful for you if it's doing it kind of with a as a sister theater group over there to the Golden Thread or some sort of a theater exchange kind of thing. So I just thought I would mention that because that's what came to me as you were talking about that. Um, and, uh, and so having mentioned your family, as we heard in the introduction, you've had some let us say disagreements <laughs> within your family um, and from that of course on the theater realm you've written and created a one-man show called Blood Fruit um, so can you maybe just give us a little insight into what it is that you've experienced within your family especially around the whole coming out process and how that led to Blood Fruit and what doing the one-man show has meant to you and also how it perhaps has helped in somehow affecting the situation with your family members? Right. Well, that's a, that's a big subject there. So it's like, a, I always tell the story differently. Sometimes it's a life story of like the whole process and sometimes it's a spiritual story. And, but it, it's really all like all of those things because it, it really is the intersection of my life and everything else going on that I do like theater and yada, yada. So, Basically, um, in high school, I came out, and when I did, my brother, um, I didn't tell my parents, my brother threatened to kill me, and at that time, he didn't know how to react. All of his friends were these immigrant, you know, you know, boys in high school, which, you know, they're always like, oh, you know, back this, back that, and oh, that's gay, and all that stuff, and he, does, he didn't know any better. Um, he did connect with a more mature friend of his that he's still really good friends with and very close to um, named Sylvia. And um, she helped convince him that it was okay. She actually has a gay brother, from what I understand, and um, helped him calm down. And eventually he apologized, and, um, and it was true remorse. <clears throat> and he also told me that when the time came that I would want to tell my parents that he would be supporting me and basically be the first soldier in my little army against my parents if it came to that. So he made a full, you know, 180 and it was, 
it was really remarkable and influenced me to choose to stay local for college because by that time it was my senior year and I was making a decision. And I'd gotten accepted into UC Berkeley. I really wanted to go there. It, was, it had been my dream since my freshman year after doing some research on colleges. It just seemed like the right place for me. But uh, UC Riverside, closer to home, had offered a full scholarship, but I didn't want to stay close to home. And he called me out, my brother. He said, um, you're, you're choosing to leave because you're running away from us. And you're running away because you're scared of what, your par- of what our parents will say when you tell them that you're gay. And, I mean, he hit the nail on the head and, you know, convinced me to stay um, for the family, for the sake of being able to stay close with them and not, you know, not feel like I was running away. Because uh, ultimately I would have been going for the wrong reason. And then fast forward to my senior year of high school, of college, rather, and uh, they put that Yes on Prop 8 sign on their lawn, and it just pissed me off. I'm like, you know, they can't know that this is not okay because they don't know that I'm gay. And that lack of awareness is really what I knew then would be the first step towards them understanding that putting, a, putting that sign on their lawn is not okay by me. And it's my house, too, you know, the home that I, I grew up in for, like, half my life. So I told the siblings that I was going to, to, um, to uh, tell them, to tell my parents. And I have, I have three siblings. I have a, uh, two sisters and a brother. One sister was like, yes, do it. I'm on your side. Let's go. The other sister and my brother both said no. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. You're not financially stable. You're still a student. You're dependent on them. They gave me 50 billion reasons not to do it, but they weren't listening. It wasn't about my my needs as a as a you know as a kid, as a as someone who needed their financial support or a person who needed you know a home to go to to fall back on in case they decided to exile me or whatever. It, it was a need to be understood as a human being that they gave life to. I mean, really, it came down to that. And um, and I decided with the sister that was on my side about telling them that although we wouldn't tell them, we would kind of hint at it, um, at least to try to defend gay people in general and, and gay marriage, you know, the concept. And in that process, my parents kind of put two and two together and basically figured it out uh, that I was gay, and uh, it really got uh, crazy after that. They they stopped talking to me, or when they did, my mom would, um, would burst into tears and start wailing about, you know, how I've ruined her life, and I've ruined my own, and all this stuff, and, and my dad wouldn't even look at me. He wouldn't um, talk to me, and my brother at that time... Um, uh, also kind of cut off communication, and when he did communicate to me, he would yell, and he would argue, and he would say things like, um, you need to go back there and tell them that you were kidding, that you, or, or that it was just a thought in your head, and that you haven't acted on it, and that you're, you're actually straight, and, and go see a priest like they're asking you to, because they did. They asked me to go see a priest as if he was going to cure the gay in me, um, my, my late friend Eddie and I had a, an ongoing joke at the time that it was um, Pray the Gay Away, the musical, was what I was going to write. Uh, it was a joke. It was never going to be a thing. But Pray the Gay Away, I was a thing. 
Um, and actually, I'm glad I mentioned him now because he was instrumental at that time. I had just met him right around the time they put that sign up on their lawn, and he really helped encourage me to just tell to just tell them to just say, you know what, this is who you are, and you need to just be honest about that. And um, and after I told them, he was instrumental in, in keeping me sane after after that and being basically being the surrogate brother that my brother was failing to be as a quote-unquote soldier, you know, how he was going to help me. And um, and some distance from the family happened after that, and I there were a couple of interactions with my brother that led me to think that he was going to do me harm. Um, I, I don't know if it was going to be that he was going to kill me or if he was just going to rough me up or if he was just going to sit there and yell at me. But it definitely didn't sound like we were going to have a little tea party and, and talk about, you know, daisies. <laughs> and, and I've made that very clear to him since, um, that his actions and behaviors at the time made me feel very threatened. And um, as it Did he out, ever... Yeah, did, did he has he ever said why he kind of flip-flopped so much because it's like in high school he got upset but then he seemed to kind of come around with the help of his friend then he's the one that convinced you to stay at home to go to college but then suddenly is upset now that this is happening and <laughs> that you've stayed at home and are now saying this has he ever been able to explain why he kind of so dramatically flip-flopped back and forth well, you know, I imagine it's the same the same way that I flip-flopped before I came out, and it is that, you know, and I think all of us, to an extent, experience this, this fleeting thought of, and this is, I'm just saying this is a parallel, the, for me it was a fleeting thought of, wait, I am gay, I am attracted to guys, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, and yes, I am, and yes, I am, and no, I'm not, and no, I'm not, until finally I say, yes, I am, and let me tell people. For him, there was also an internal struggle, because... When you come out, it's not about you. It's about everybody else at that point. You know how they how they deal with the with the information. And for my brother, it was a real struggle because, you know, he grew up for for half of his life in the Middle East, where that's just something it's so taboo. People don't even talk about it. And then if they do, they talk about how those people, those things, those creatures are killed because they're just disgusting. Um, and so he comes here and he's. He befriended all these people, and, and this is all the way up till he was, let's see, he was 22, I think, at the, at the time I told him. I mean, that's a long life to live without ever knowing a gay person directly, never, you know, never dealing with a gay person as a human being. And to have his brother come out as gay, he was, he was dealing with that information as best he could. Not to say that he did a great job, <laughs> But he had his own internal struggles, and um, just like I feared what would happen if I told my parents and what they would do, he feared it as well, and so did my other siblings. And I understand, you know, the struggle that he dealt with at the time, and, and mind you, all of this has only come up in the last two years um, that he finally opened up and really, truly apologized about everything and has become a brother to me again. Um, and I'll get to that, too, because that's part of the story. Uh, but in terms of the flip-flopping, I mean, that's the best answer I can give. Um, 
And basically what he's told me himself is that he just was dealing with it. He was struggling and trying to understand his place in it. Um, and I'm sure probably that he was exploring his, his own, you know, his own sexuality and trying to think, well, why? I mean, that's just, uh, I think that's something that naturally happens. I don't know. But I don't know. I haven't talked to him about that. So anyway, yeah, but... so that was does that answer your question now? I mean, <laughs> it, it does. It does. And sorry to go off on that, you know, kind of side note there. But now back to your final year of college and you've told your parents and now your brother's upset and we're moving towards your one man show. Yes. So I, um, I started at the time I, I started getting more sexually explorative and, you know, being a little more comfortable with, um, was just fooling around in general, and I got in bed with the wrong guy. Um, I, tr- I started to trust him. He was teaching me horseback riding training, um, and then we would fool around afterwards, and it was always safe. The last time we fooled around, though, he did not put on a condom, and I wasn't aware of it because up until that point, he had always put it on. Like, it became almost like a ritual, you know, like it was, it was without saying, which was frankly a relief because sometimes you have to have this conversation with these guys like, well, actually, I would prefer if you put on a con-, you know what I mean? And um, so I trusted him to put one on, and I realized too late that he had not because I didn't check. Um, and it made me really uncomfortable. The next day I asked him directly because I didn't know his um, – his status or anything and I asked him and he said oh I've been positive for years like very cavalier about it and I freaked out on him I was like well hello like I'm I'm negative he goes no 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 you're fine you'll be fine and I I felt a lot of shame at the time about about that and I didn't um, frankly it was the end of my senior year so I was super busy and I decided uh, not decided. I just didn't have time to do the research, to think about it. And two weeks later, I got sick. And um, a weekend, I, I figured out what it was. And um, and that led to a lot of other medical complications. By the time I graduated, I, I had dealt with the sickness. I knew what was happening with my body. And I was okay I was really distraught at the time, though, because of how my parents were treating me. They still were on the whole, I, I kind of hate you because you're gay thing. And they were disappointed that I had majored in theater. So at my graduation, they were very, I don't know, they seemed not as thrilled as they were when my brother graduated for biochemistry. You know, a big difference there for them. And it felt, it felt terrible. And... But I thought, you know what? I'm getting my chance to get away now. I'm going to the school dell'arte in the fall. It's going to be up in Humboldt County. I'm going to get away from these people. I think the distance will do us good. It's not like I was running away and trying to like never speak to them again. But I just thought distance will will make things better. And while I was up there, because of my my medical issues, uh, I ended up having a surgery. Um, on my third day of class to remove an infection that I developed, um, and I had to drop out of the program. I took my loan money and, and, and tried to move to L.A., and 
it was just a mess. I mean, I had to keep having surgeries, so I kept having to, to leave that um, to leave L.A. and move back home and back and forth. And um, my parents started to wonder, you know, what's going on with me medically. <laughs> and um, actually, through a little bit of uh, backstabbing, I, had, I was forced to tell them that I was HIV positive. And that happened because before I left for my school, I told my sister. And um, she ended up telling my brother, who I was not speaking to at the time, because she, was, she didn't know what to do. She didn't, um, the information was too much for her to bear. And I, I totally understand that. Um, it just felt terrible because he didn't tell my parents, but he did hint that maybe there was something that I wasn't telling them that maybe they should press on me about because he thinks that I'm not telling them something. And on an unrelated note, mom and dad, would you want to know if I had cancer or something like that? So he kind of planted these seeds in their minds that I was really sick. Um, and, of course, with HIV now, it's so easy to, to maintain. Um, the infection stuff was, was somewhat related uh, and but but not directly to uh, to HIV. HIV just kind of complicated other issues that were already going on. Um, and I was forced to explain to them what what the deal was, um, what was happening with me. And in explaining it to them, they suddenly they 180. They thought they thought I was going to die. So immediately their thoughts went from let's save your soul to let's save your your body, like, let's keep you alive. How do we do that? And, and I explained to them, you know, I'm fine. All, all the medicine's fine. I, I, I threw some, research, some articles at them so they, they would understand, you know, the, um, the disease better. And, um, and they suddenly flipped. My mom stopped getting into hysterics. My dad started looking me in the eye again, and, and we would talk, and, you know, it was it was really lovely, and and in that process, just of being open, being candid about what was going on, ended up ultimately healing the problems that we'd had before. We're at a point now, me and my parents, where I can I can tell them um, this happened recently that the day that, um, I, I was uh, living with a boyfriend and I told them about him and and that I might not come to Thanksgiving um, because I'd want to spend it with him and I knew he wouldn't be welcome, that turned into them inviting him to go to Thanksgiving. Of course, the rules were that we couldn't stay in the same room and we couldn't make it obvious. But the fact that they in extended that invitation was like, God, you know, how did we get to this point? And it came down to me being out and, and able to tell them these things and, um, and not be afraid of those consequences because they had to deal with those things on their own. And then um, going back to the original question, in terms of the show, while I was in L.A. and swapping around and going back and forth, I didn't have time because of searching for a job to do anything with the theater, and it really depressed me. And at the time, my friend Brenda Varda had opened up a writing studio in L.A. that unfortunately had since closed down. It was really great. It was called Word Space. It was a beautiful venue. Um, uh, and they, she offered a lot of different kinds of workshops, and one of them she emailed every, everybody on her list about was autobiographical solo performance writing. 
And I thought, well, that sounds like the perfect way for me to tell my story. <laughs> so it took me about a year in this workshop, and I, and I wrote it with the help of Eric Trules, who um, teaches out of USC. Uh, he focuses on improvisation and solo performance writing. And, um, and he's really the developer of the show, along with, um, with my classmates, uh, or workshop mates, I guess. Uh, and that show really anchored me in the theater while at the same time getting to tell this whole story. Um, and being able to perform that story was cathartic in itself, that I was able to take the things that upset me, the things that shamed me, the things that I've, I've dealt with, and just dumping them all out onto this audience course in a meaningful and artful way, I should hope, <laughs> and, um, and having them get something out of it really meant more than me just, you know, going around doing my own thing, um, but to share it meant, meant that much. Does that make sense? It does, um, because, mm -hmm. and I think that's the whole point of art, really, is it becomes something bigger than ourselves or the people that are performing it or creating it when it touches people in that way. Um, and, and you get to feel more like the conduit rather than just the person who deserves accolades for something. Um, and so once you produced it and it was on stage and it um, seemed to be well-received because you got into the Hollywood Fringe Festival, um, how did your family respond to the fact that, you know, their their family business was being exposed on stage like this well now that was the next little um uh, so i've had three coming outs i came out as gay to my parents i came out as hiv positive to my parents and then i had to come out as by the way i have a whole one-man show where i tell everybody this <laughs> because it is kind of a coming out and they they responded okay at First, but when they caught a DVD of it that I accidentally left behind of the first version of it, which was still kind of, I mean, I don't think it was super rough, but it was not quite as polished as it is now. They couldn't even get through it because they thought that I depicted them as these like monsters, these like, you know, orientalized, you know, old world, angry people. And I said, you know, you only got through half of it. Um, you didn't watch the whole thing. But they did send it to my brother, who didn't even know the show existed, and he was livid. He thought, like, I made him look like the devil and, um, and that I got facts wrong and all this, all this stuff. And um, by the time all this drama was happening was when I returned to Del Arte um, in, in, in fall of 2012, and I was dealing with that at the beginning. At the same time, UC Riverside, my alma mater, commissioned me to come out to um, oh, excuse me, to perform my show at UCR as like a guest alumni performer, which was really a huge honor. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm all professional now. Um, and I chose to go down to do it around Thanksgiving so that I could see my family around Thanksgiving. Well, at the time, the family wasn't that happy with me. And I sat down with them. And uh, it was my brother, my dad, and my mom, because um, my two sisters didn't really, it didn't really affect them that much. They, you know, they were painted well in the story, <laughs> so they didn't care, I guess. Um, but my brother started 
you know, fact-checking me, and I said, look, this show is not, is not a, me telling every nitty-gritty detail of my life. It is, as Eric Trules put it, we are creating art out of the fabric of our lives. And to make something theatrical, I needed to, you know, alter this a little bit, but as long as the feeling of, of the situation was the same, it didn't matter that, you know, I said these exact words instead of these exact words. And, and so I, I calmed him down about that. And in telling him all this, I, said, I, I had listed uh, for him all those details, you know, bouncing back the details he was calling out back at him with why I chose the things I chose. Um, and I was very calm about everything. And at the end, I said, the thing is, you never once apologized for these things. I said, you know, I know now that, that you were dealing with it on your own, that you were struggling with how to deal with mom and dad. And, and actually, at the time, he was supporting me. He was, he was convincing my parents that it was okay, that gay people are normal and not like, you know, these creatures that are going to be damned to hell and blah, 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 although they might that um, old school, you know, Catholic. But, um, but really got them to, to calm down. And, and mind you, my brother, in his process of dealing with me, also kind of reaffirmed his own Catholicism and, and delved back into the church, which some might go like, ooh, that's not a good thing. And at the time, it didn't seem like a good, a good thing for me. But, um, but it really brought him peace. It really brought him clarity that, and he's, so he's what we would call, I would say, like a good Christian, which is the, the kind that doesn't judge, that, that is just all about love and, and giving that love to people to support, to support them, even if they're sinning in the eyes of his own religion. Does that make sense? Um, he, so I've seen him you know, grow and mature in this process. And here I'm, stand, I'm sitting at this table with him explaining this, this stuff. And I said, you've never apologized for making me feel threatened while you were working through your thing. You've never acknowledged that you did these things that made me think that you were going to kill me. And he apologized then and there. I made him do it three times because I didn't feel it was sincere uh, for the first two. Um, first, he wasn't looking me in the eye. Then he, then he tried to excuse his behavior, and I said, look, just apologize. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, I'm sorry. Can we move on now? And I said, yeah. And since then, he's come and visited me in San Francisco, and we're all buddy-buddy, and we, like, text each other back and forth, and, like, we were just texting each other last night. It was great. Um, and... Uh, and turning, turning back to my parents, uh, you know, their issue became about my name because I anonymized all, the, all of the people in, in my story for the show um, except for myself, which links my, myself to my parents directly. Um, and one of the things that they're, that they're dealing with is what it's like to have their friends know about me, and they're not really comfortable with that, so they they want me to use a stage name or just a, a pseudonym or something. That was what came out of that conversation. And I've, I've really seriously considered it, and I've opted to not change the name, and I think that it falls in line with, um, 
with my with my theme of be out there, be yourself, be true, and the healing will come. The healing will happen if you just trust in that. So if I if I changed my name, that's like I feel like that's me backpedaling. Like I here's my entire story of my life, but I'm going to pretend like I'm someone else because I need to, because I still have that little ounce of shame left. And I think that eventually they'll understand that that's why I chose, um, at least I would hope that that's what, that they would understand eventually, you know, that that's why I chose uh, to make, to keep my name. Um, but even so, it was after that that they invited my, uh, my now ex-boyfriend to, to come to Thanksgiving and all that stuff. It's very, it's been an interesting journey with them. I mean, yeah, it's been beautiful. And you're currently in talks to revive blood fruit again in San Francisco. Yes. Now that, um, now that my productions with golden thread, the middle Eastern theater company are, are uh, wrapping up uh, next week, we'll be closing. Well, temporarily closing the show, The Fifth String. Um, uh, we'll be bringing it back in December. But in the, in the interim, I want to revise the show and, and get it remounted. I do have a producer interested. Um, we'll see. I might self-produce if, if he um, doesn't, doesn't follow through, which is fine. Um, but I'm really looking at, at putting it back up. There seems to be a lot of interest in San Francisco, um, I have it listed on my little profiles, like on Scruff and, and on my Facebook and everything, and people ask me about it all the time. They're like, well, tell me about the show. What is the show about? Oh, I've heard about the show. Like, um, so we'll, we'll see. But the plan right now is to get it up and running uh, by the fall, particularly because um, in October is uh, our event, Stone and Stang, with the Unnamed Path, and I, I plan to perform it at the, at the event. So any producers, patrons of the arts, backers, investors listening right now, if, if it sounds intriguing to you and something you want to support, feel free to either get in contact with me or with, uh, with Mejd. I'm sure that he'll be happy to talk to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Reach out. Um, and so you just mentioned the unnamed path, and a little while ago you mentioned Eddie Gutierrez when you were in L.A., um, Actually, before I ask that, what what was your impetus? What what is it that that um, drove you to want to be in theater and major in theater and, and pursue that direction as a, a career? You know, it's funny. Okay, so I I didn't do a single play until my junior year of high school. Before then, I was my only performing was I, I played the tenor sax, so I was in the band. But that's different. You know, you can kind of hide in the band. I joined the theater because. It was after a, uh, within a year after I'd come out, and I really was lonely as a gay man and thought, well, the theater, that's where all the gay guys are. And I joined, and I was the only one. <laughs> so it ended up being about the theater and, like, performing that I actually delved into it. So it's funny that I was trying to, like, find my little gay niche, and it turned out to be, like, the thing that I became the most passionate about. And um, I don't know, it was just something about performing just really struck a chord with me. And I think, um, especially now in light of this show, you know, Blood Fruit, that I, and, and being able to use theater as a means to get, reconnect with my culture and everything, if I had become a doctor, I, I would 
still be this Americanized guy who doesn't have any interest in, you know, reconnecting or, or ever going back to Iraq. Although, you know, who knows? That's all hypothetical. But how different my life would be. And, and honestly, I don't know that it would be as rich. You know, this little journey that I've been on has been really, really strongly guided by the fact that I chose theater. Um, and that I was passionate about it enough that I majored it in it and not in computer science and not in biochemistry or, 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 or what, what have you. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's just not meant for me, I guess. That's right. No, nothing wrong with those. I have friends that are doctors. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, it, and it's good that they exist. We need that's right. Uh, and it, it, it just strikes me as interesting that it was – after you came out in high school and then started to pursue theater because it's almost as if you needed something to help train you in how to um, put on the best performance of your life because over the next few years you were having to basically be one person at home with your parents while being a different person when you were out in the world because you were basically out in the world and yet not to your parents. Um, yep. And so you had you had mentioned uh, Eddie Gutierrez and the the unnamed path. Um, can you maybe just speak a little bit about what that is and how that has played a role in your life? Yeah, in fact, that all was instrumental in, in writing the show as well. So Eddie Gutierrez, I met um, during my little. Uh, resorting to sex as escapism thing. And, and he was, it's funny, um, he was intended as a, as a one-night stand. He was going to be my first one-night stand. I was just going to, you know, have my way with him and leave and never speak to him again because that's what people do, right? That's what gay guys do. And I get to his house, and the first thing he does uh, is give me this hug. And he knew only a little bit of what was going on with me. I, I said that I was having a rough week, and so the first thing he did in this hug, I, I, I didn't know at the time. I just I melted. Like I felt a physical, real change in myself. And after after this, like I mean, it felt like an hour-long hug. I'm sure it wasn't, but it felt that way. And I, I looked at him and I said, "What did you just do to me?" And he said, have you ever heard of Reiki? And I said, is that like energy healing or something? He said, because uh, I, I worked at a spa, so I knew, you know, from the little Reiki CDs and, you know, we offered Reiki and that kind of thing. Um, so I was somewhat familiar, but I'd never had it done. And he said, yeah, I just put a little bit of that energy into you and it did what it needed to do. And I was sold. You know, there's a lot of people who are very uh, skeptical about that stuff and and I said, the thing was, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, how can I say it's psychosomatic when I, there was no anticipation, and I just, I felt a real physical, spiritual, emotional change all at once with this, with this um, hug. And, I mean, his, his power was so real. And after um, we did what I was there to do, uh, <laughs> um, I started talking to him more, and the next time we met up, it was actually to help me go through my first shamanic journey. I was very interested in it, and 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 all of those things. He had even said, he's like, well, lucky for you, you landed in bed with a teacher of this stuff. And I was like, well, lucky me. <laughs> and 
after that, we became really best friends, and I, I saw him frequently, um, uh, and not not it became not even about fooling around. It was it became really just a friendship and, and a spiritual connection. And when I came back from um, after I came back from Del Arte, uh, from when I dropped out, he suggested that I go through the class. Uh, for being initiated in the unnamed path. And I said, you know what, this might be exactly what I need because at the time I was really depressed. I was, you know, I felt like I had failed at life. I, like I I didn't, um, my all of my plans went totally in another direction. And and I needed something to anchor me. And, you know, I, I find a lot of times uh, I, I'll say something like religion is a crutch. Um, and you know, sometimes you need crutches when you're broken, <laughs> like, and, and at that time I really needed that as a, as a crutch. And now it's more of like, a, you know, what are those called? Like buttresses to hold up my, my house. It's like totally the foundation for, for me, which is really great. Um, and in, in my, in my process of, of, you know, working on, on myself in that spiritual path, um, I learned a lot about myself, and one of the big ones was that I have, and it's a lesson that I think a lot of a lot of spiritual paths highlight. It just felt stronger for me in this, and it is, you know, from your deepest vulnerabilities comes your your biggest source of power. You know, that little um, that little person crying on the inside. If you heal him, he becomes your loudest voice and strongest voice. And that was true for me in so many ways because it was at that time that I was working on that little crying self on the inside was when I was writing my show. And I could have written about anything autobiographical. And let me tell you, I have no shortage of stories. It could have been about my my little journey from Baghdad to, to America and being Americanized. It could have been about me being fat and then losing weight. It could have been about so many things, but I chose to make it be about coming out because that was where I was most vulnerable. And that came out of my work in the unnamed path. Um, and even in writing the show, Eddie, um, there, was a, there was a day when I said, you know, Eddie, I don't know how to end this thing. I'm still trying to figure out the, the title, you know, I had submitted that I was going to be in the in the Hollywood Fringe Festival, and the show wasn't even done being written. So I was like struggling at that time. So he said, "Okay, let's just get together at my house. We'll we'll put out my whiteboard that he used to like keep track of his. He um, he had a um, a hoodoo practice, so that was what he used to fill his client orders to say like, okay, I need three of this kind of oil and four of this kind of powder. Um, so he cleared that, and then we sat there with his little whiteboard and wrote out. Um, all the different ideas, symbols, and everything. And he's the one who helped me come out with with the title "Blood Fruit." Um, and the and it, the title, mind you, works um, symbolically because in the show and in my life, uh, when my parents found out that I was gay, my dad, uh, in one of his many lectures about why I shouldn't be gay and why I should be a priest, um, mentioned that the one tree that I planted in his backyard, a blood orange tree died not too long before I came out and he said and he blamed my being gay. He said it was it was God telling 
telling me that what I'm doing is is sick and will and and is death and blah blah blah. And I'm like, no, actually, it died because you over pruned it because the leaves, some of the leaves were diseased and he he took out too many of them. So um, which was just something that was happening and not just in our backyard. It was like a neighborhood thing. So he he was completely attaching. You know, too much symbolism to this thing, and so we used that as the main as the main symbol, and it was perfect because, you know, with HIV, with me being HIV positive, the whole blood theme, um, fruit, you know, a little uh, tongue in cheek joke about being gay, <laughs> you know, fruity, um, and uh, and you know, so he was he was instrumental in that, and he he also was a character in my show, and I called him Carlos. Um, and gave him a little Cuban accent, which he helped me with, which was really fun. Um, his mom, uh, Vicky, actually saw, uh, has seen the show too, and she uh, she loved the accent. And, um, and so now I have permission to use his real name since his passing. Uh, she she said I think it would be good to include that. And also, you know, since he passed, and I mean I I'm sure we'll talk about this too, but when he since he passed a lot of the stuff that he healed at the time I was dealing with again and his passing really helped heal a lot of those things all over again, just reminding me that he's already worked with me on this stuff and I feel it's very important to include in the show um, what his what his death meant to me and and how it's shaping my my present now and, and my future to come. Um, uh, anyway, I feel like I sidetracked from from the initial question, but maybe not. Tom, no, that's okay. <laughs> no, 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 and and I just wanted to clarify for people, and you can you know certainly uh, correct me, but uh, the unnamed path is a, a shamanic based tradition that is specifically yeah. focuses on men who love men and them working in that uh, shamanic tradition. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and as part of that, which started last year, you have a uh, a weekend retreat that uh, the Unnamed Path now sponsors, puts on. <laughs> um, yeah. And that will be coming up in October called Stone and Stang. Yeah, it's the first weekend of October. Uh, the dates are the 3rd to the 6th this year. And um, this is basically us. Uh, the brothers of the unnamed path taking the torch from uh, from Eddie and his passing. Um, it's actually kind of ironic because he said last year, you know, oh the unnamed path is hosting this, but I've been doing all the work. Next year, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a damn thing, and I'm just gonna sit back and relax while all of you do it. <laughs> and then he passed away. <laughs> so we kind of such a drama it. queen. I know. Jeez, had to had to. Going. You could have, I know he could have just delegated. He didn't have to go to such extremes. Gee. I um, know. <laughs> and people um, can find out more about that at stoneandstang.com. Yes, stone yes. and stang, not S T A N G. Stone and stang. No, that came up actually because we kept going like, wait, stone and and drang. Wait, what? <laughs> You're like drang. Yeah. Sturm and Drang, that's what you do in yeah. your personal in your professional life. Stone and Stang, that's something you're helping in your personal life. Um, yeah. How do you feel that? Go ahead. Uh, well, I was I was going to ask, how do you feel that 
having had kind of this spiritual awakening and doing this spiritual work, how has that informed you as an actor and how do you see that carrying over into what the experience in theater is like? Well, Um, and, and for me, in my work in the theater, I've, I've always been more, um, more engaged when it was some kind of piece that, that actually helped the audience, that educated the audience, that, that did something more than just, like, do, you know, dumb entertainment for an hour, an hour and a half, you know? And, and there is an intersection there between that, that idea of catharsis, you know, the, this releasing of emotion, this this uh, this development of empathy between myself, between the audience, that come that is directly related to spirituality. That I am helping a community through through my energy, through their energy, kind of heal each other, educate each other, um, and that's. That's my interest right now. Uh, like even the show that I'm doing right now, The Fifth String, is about cultural awareness. It's about education. You know, as I tell people about the show, they're like, wait, there was a guy in the ninth century, and he was a Muslim, and he came from Baghdad all the way to Cordoba, Spain, and he, he's responsible for all the music that's in Spain. He, he introduced the fork to Spain. He... Um, He's the reason we have different styles for different seasons because he was a fashionista, and he—I mean—he did all these things, and people didn't know that. So in that sense, bringing something to a community that didn't otherwise know, or maybe did, maybe had some inkling, and, and expanding on that knowledge—that uh, kind of work is so valuable, and again, connects to to a, to a shamanic path, being a person who is who is a spiritual leader, a community leader, you know, a person who brings people together, what better place for that than the theater? And it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm going to do a story now about, like, it's not, it's, you know, my interest is, in, is never going to be uh, like a pagan um, theater, which does exist and is, and is wonderful, and I would definitely do, but it's not going to be my concentration because it's so much bigger than, showing people the rituals of, of old and that some people still do or or um, just doing stories about old gods. There's, there's a deeper thing there where as long as the themes are cathartic, I think, does that magic that I am working on on my audience. Does that make sense? It does. And I think also very similar to when people come together to do a a ritual in the sense of like a, a spiritual oriented kind of ritual. It's the same with theater. It's it's what the, each of the people that are coming to that bring to it. And then what is created by all of them coming together, whether that's in a ritual space or in a theater space, really the same thing is happening because you could be doing a comedy on stage, but if the, everybody is coming to that theater with stress about their day and they're grumpy and they're not laughing at anything, then just like a spiritual, I mean, a, a ritual that falls flat on a spiritual level, that theater performance can fall flat. Um, but I also think that what you're talking about is is both important and, you know, is really illustrated, for example, in your one-man show. Because a lot of people would think 
and we tend to lump everything into genres and categories. And so they would think, oh, well, if this is a play about a guy coming out to his family, then he's a, a gay actor or it's a gay play. Um, you know, and it, it gets very pigeonholed, whereas really what's happening is your coming out process is actually tapping into something deeper in everybody that sees it because it's not about everybody coming out gay in their lives. It's recognizing where in my life do I tend to not be fully authentic? Where am I afraid mm-hmm. to show my true self? And I think that's mm-hmm. also the power of the spiritual tradition and spiritual practices is it's helping us to go deeper and uncover deeper layers of ourselves that oftentimes we're even afraid to look at, let alone are aware of that are there. Um, And so for me, having those kind of experiences can happen anywhere. And your training and background in the spiritual tradition and the practices and the techniques that are used for that, I think probably carry over and can play a very powerful role in how you are able to affect an audience differently the same way that you said like when eddie hugged you which to a lot of people would seem like just a hug and yet Mm -hmm. he brought something else to it even without saying it that affected you on a deeper level i think it's the same Mm -hmm. thing that we're able to do if it's done with conscious intention right Um, yeah all about that and and now you you've started to create masks which are also something that I think is very often used in spiritual and ritual settings. Uh, but what is it that drew you to starting to create masks, and how are you utilizing those? You know, I'm still I'm still exploring that. I still feel like it's a relatively new skill for me, even though it's, it's been years now that I've been making them. Um, uh, while my masks can be used for spiritual purposes. I have not delved into that. I've made a couple of pieces like that um, for, for people as commissions. Um, but in terms of, you know, my, my engagement with that craft, it's, it's more, for me, it's an aesthetic thing. I really like working with my hands. I've never really done that before mask making, so it was really an interesting endeavor. And um, people seem to really like what I make. So I've, I've been working on... On, on that craft a little on the side. I'm, I'm starting to launch it as a, as a side business, and I think it's just going to be something that I, I'm, I'm just going to try things and see what sticks and see what doesn't, and um, it might just be a side hobby for a little bit, but if it turns into something, I think that would be really terrific. I still, but I still am in exploration about what that craft means to me, and um, and how it applies to the bigger picture. Um, I mean, there are obvious answers, you know, like masks and ritual, and what if, what if I create performances with, with these masks that, all, that fall in line with the same, with the same themes that I, that I like to stick with um, in, in performing and, and why I perform. But I'm still, I'm still looking into that. Well, and it strikes me that it's another outgrowth of really what you've done throughout your life in some ways. Because you've had to wear a lot of masks and learn how to put on a mask at the right time in front of the right people. Um, But I think that what you've also illustrated through the different things that you've done in your life, especially in the different time periods that you've come out and then bringing it to stage, your life story, you know, for me, 
masks are an incredibly powerful tool that can be used in a theater setting or something like that because they can be really powerful to evoke a certain image or a certain feeling in the audience that's seeing something that can often take somebody away from seeing just a, a person or a human being up there, but it can certainly create something completely different for the viewer. But also, you know, even if it's used in ritual purposes, but and whether it's literal or symbolic, it's this idea of more importantly, we wear the mask to achieve a certain effect or to a certain purpose. But then the bigger question becomes, who are we when we take the mask off? And how has wearing that mask affected us or changed us so that when we take it off, we are able to be more deeply and fully and authentically ourselves? Uh, and, and whether that's in a theater, because I know I hear actors, you know, say all of the time how playing a certain character affects them or changes them in some way as a person um, because of where they've had to go to or what they've had to experience by kind of inhabiting that character. And in ritual purposes, wearing masks can help us to suddenly, you know, we become the vessel for, say, a deity or something like that, which is going to deeply affect us and probably change us even when we take the mask off. So I think that it's not a surprise you have felt drawn to doing that and creating masks because I think it's an outgrowth of what you've been through and, and the processes that you have gone through in your life and recognizing what it's like to wear masks when it's important to do that and how doing that can help us to tap into something deeper so that when we take the mask off, we actually are something richer and more authentic in the world. Yeah. So we... Now, as we move to a conclusion of our conversation, there is something that I do with each guest, and there will be two things that I will ask of you. The first will be a question that was posed by a previous guest, not knowing who it would be asked to for you to respond. And then I will ask you for a question that you would like to pose for a future guest without knowing who it is, not only for them, but also for anyone listening when they hear that question to perhaps spur thought for them as to how they might respond. Okay. So the, the, the first question is going to come from a guest that I had on recently. Um, her name is Manida, and she is a Buddhist nun. And her question for you is this. What does your heart long for? Love and Say the second part again, love and community. Community. All right. Yes. And what question would you like to pose for everyone listening as well as for my next guest? Hmm. You know, I uh, let me think for a second. How about What is the next act of healing that you will give to someone? All right. I think that's what is what is the next act of healing that you will give to someone? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a question and a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that we get information for people to find out more about you and things you've talked about. 
Um, they can find out about you at artmasks.com, which is a art art hey masks, which is a r t e m a s k s dot com. And, and the, the, the website is somewhat under construction, but it is available. There's a gallery of the masks, and there's information about uh, about blood fruit and and everything in there. But don't let the first thing fool you of saying that it's under construction. I'm working on on um, revising the website. So. And for the retreat coming up in October called Stone and Stang, that's just stoneandstang, S-T-A-N-G, dot com. Correct. And if they wanted to find out more just about the unnamed path, is that the unnamed path dot com or dot org? It's dot com. So, and, and is there a the? Actually, no, not on the website, not in the URL. It's just unnamedpath.com. Okay. And, of course, if they were interested in seeing some of the performances for the fifth string that is taking place in San Francisco next weekend, uh, and yes. then again in December, people can just visit goldenthread.org, which is for the Correct. theater company itself. All right. That's right. Well, Mez Murad Al-Sheikh. <laughs> <laughs> Chaldean of Iraqi birth. <laughs> I would like to extend a thousand gratitudes to you for taking some time to join us and share a bit of your life story. I'm sure that what it is that you have shared has both resonated with people and has perhaps even offered them some things to think about in terms of how they can approach their lives as well as to begin to be a bit more willing to take off their own masks and play an authentic role in their life story rather than trying to be the character that other people want to see. So thank you very much for having taken time and joined me here today. Thank you for having me. And stay tuned because coming up next, we will have our Living Well segment with Linda Wiley. And following that is your opportunity to call in and receive a reading live during the show. Uh, as long as you get in the queue, um, not to worry, the live stream may end at 12.30, but if you're already in the queue, it'll be fine and we'll still get around to you. And if you want to hear the rest of the show, you can always find us in the archives, either here on Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes. Just look up Firefly Willows Live and you can find our iTunes uh, channel page there, where this show, as well as all of the shows under Firefly Willows Live, are available. Uh, if you'd like to get in the queue for a reading, just Skype in from the show page, or you can call 646-716-5510. So, stay tuned. Living Well with Linda Wiley is coming up next, and then our live readings. You are officially
You're listening to Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with High C. Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive. It is a being. It is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need. It is the web of life. Vandana Shiva Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. Through my studies and research, I found that ritual is sacred living. Ritual is sacred sacred living. And then I realized that Sacred living is ritual. Sacred living is ritual. ritual. We do it for the health and well-being of ourselves, each other, community, all things, and the earth, because it's all the same thing. So how do we find meaning in today's world when so much that is of the living reality has been destroyed in the name of progress and globalization marches on? What can we add back into our lives that make connections into realms that have been disregarded and even made to be unreal in fantasies of the mind. The programmed world is not the real world, though it is what we have come to call life today. It is the world devoid of anything that is sacred, yet the sacred is our touchstone to life itself. The sacred is our touchstone to life itself. For it is what we are and what we have forgotten about who and what we really are. This is what needs to be remembered. 
we must know that without the sacred, life is devoid of life. It is what the ancients and indigenous know the world round and why this knowledge had to be destroyed for the world to run amok as it is now. Also been taken away is the viability of the elder within life, within community, within the world. These things taken together then, the honoring of the elder wisdom, the understanding of ritual, and the sacred understanding of life being removed from life, have taken the heart of life offline. And when this is so, all matter of control, manipulation, and creation of fabricated realities can and do continue. It is the living of the lies, as the world is today, that causes so much depression, anger, feelings of loss, separation, not being heard, isolation, feelings of not being good enough, low self-esteem, the lack of vision, the self-loathing, all of which are untrue in the deepest sense of truthful living, and simply a symptom of the story of separation that we have chosen to believe. This lack of feeling connected via community and the living world deepens what ails this world and our hearts today as we face crisis upon crisis. Why is ritual important in our lives anyway? Because it moves us from the verbal into the nonverbal realm where all possibility is possible. All possibility, all possibility is, possible. is possible. It is the most ancient way of binding community and people together in a close relationship with spirit. It communicates and offers healing as all healing really comes from the realm of spirit. Our spirits long for this communication and connection. It is what is missing from life today. Ritual, like food for the body, is food for the spirit because through ritual we are deeply nourished and the truth shines through. And the truth shines through. Ritual breaks the spell, trance of words and circular arguments of the programmed world which relieves the tension that words cannot fix. It allows for the unseen to be seen, felt, and heard. Ritual is self-care at the level of spirit, and its results can be wild and unexplained, spontaneous. This is the beauty and depth of ritual. Words that address ritual are transforming, transforming, transforming essential, 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 challenging, 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 and healing, healing. Doing ritual heals people, reconnecting them to the ancestors of the spirit world and to their own deepest purpose and truth. Because ritual is so deeply connected to our human nature, anytime it is missing, there will be a lack of transformation and healing. And surely we can see it and feel it in our world today. Ritual is a dance with spirit, dance with spirit, the soul's way of interacting with the other world. And it is the human psyche's opportunity to develop relationship with the symbols of this world and the spirits of the other. We must look within ourselves for the root cause, and when we do look deep enough, we will find that there is a disconnect with spirit that is at the basic issue. Rituals and elders and community are the music of the soul, the rhythms of life, Without these, the whole of life is disconnected and we are the ones that suffer most deeply and the inflammation of life via the lies of the program continue. Our hearts all know the more beautiful world that is possible and if we want it, we must live it. Be it, share it, feel it, return to it. Live it, be it, share it, share it, return to it. With the newness of the ancient ways, 
that we have learned and begin to live in honest ways that honor the heart and the deep knowing of that which is sacred via ritual. This gives a sparkle to life and meaning where none was seen. Ritual restores balance, which is the essence of health to the community and to the individual. So rituals have four parts. The first part would be preparing the space. The space would be uh, ripe with symbols, which would allow the, the psyche to be focused here, to to be present away from from life. And it's good to denote the space, the sacred space of passing through an arbor, a bowl of flowers, a burning candle, something that acknowledges the, the space. Then there's the invocation, the formal invitation to spirit, because spirit likes to be invited. And then the healing, this is the unseen part, but it is often felt. As we let go and surrender into the movement of spirit, we are more self-aware, and we see more clearly what words cannot always say. That means the heart's online. That's a good thing. And then there's the closing, thanking spirit and the guides, allowing them to leave or stay as they say, say as they see fit. So it is the deep honoring and thanksgiving that solidifies the ritual. The elements within the ritual are fire. This rekindles the connection and opens the door to the ancestral fire and the fire within. It is the connecting rod. It is the channel. This fire burns at the edge of consciousness, alchemically speaking, inviting us to step in and to burn away the dross to make for the gold that we all carry. But burn we must. Water. Water rituals cleanse, reconcile, restore peace. Water cools the burning psyche, calms emotional disorder, and gives vitality through self-emergence. Pollution is the exhaust system of human denial. Pollution, Pollution is the exhaust system of human denial. When water is disabled, so are we. As with all of the earth elements, as we destroy the earth, we destroy ourselves. Then earth rituals, they ground in comfort, bringing a sense of home and belonging, which so many of us need today. Minerals, they restore memory and light up our sense of knowing, remembering in our bones our truth. Nature rituals restore the, the natural self and opens us up to the magic and wonder that is around us and in us and is us. All of these elements taken together make us extremely sensitive to the cycles of life, each other, and the earth. It is in this way that the best is lived and preserved for the sacredness of all of life comes alive again. The sacredness of all of life comes alive again. No masks, no lies, no betrayals, no deceits, for all is connected in the web of life. And it is honored in this way. And we do not wander from the truth in the desert while all awaits our inner acknowledgement and truth is then lived here and now. Why not give this idea some time and see what can happen when ritual is added back into the mix of modern life? It is creative and juicy to live within ritual and life shines again in truth. As we live in harmony once again and honor all of life, the usurpation of our spirit stops as we re-engage with the sacred and see that all is alive with purpose and without compromise once again. Life sets itself straight as in free. 
and brings us along with it. Life sets itself straight as in free and brings us along with it. Tips for May. Celebrate life. Build an altar. Feel the warmth return to our beings and our hearts. Let the fires of transformation and protection burn within and without, always calling us deeper in. Create some ritual for yourself and family. Let go to spirit. Surrender the knowing and live in the unknown. Surrender the knowing and live in the unknown. And see what happens as magic presents itself. Magic presents itself. The herbs uh, round about us are coming on strong and uh, all the weeds, things that we call weeds, are actually healing herbs that can mostly be used, uh, eaten wild and raw and just adding so much health to our well-being. So uh, I'll mention four herbs this month. Dandelion is a spring inner cleansing herb. Eat the leaves and the flower and salads. You can take the the tight buds of the dandelion plant and put them in vinegar for three weeks and you have something like capers, dandelion capers, and you can mix them in salad and put them on things. You can take the flowers and make a batter and make little dandelion flower fritters and I was thinking you could create a dandelion leaf pesto to put over it. Dandelion uh, helps with water retention, edema, specific for liver concerns. Esoterically, it is used for tenacity and vitality. Nettles, rich in vitamins and minerals, helps replenish the system after a long winter. Esoterically, it is used for strength, renewal, and respect. Wear gloves when you harvest it, long sleeves, it, it stings, but you, you can make a tea out of it, you can uh, steam it like and it's just really delicious, so nourishing. Lawn daisy, the thing that we all want to mow away, we think is weeds, is an amazing little herb. Resolving to fever, it thins mucus, relieves chest condition, coughs and bronchitis, soothes digestion. It's a tonic for the skin, also an eye wash. It's an amazing little herb. A violet. Internally, the leaf is used with skin, breast, and reproductive systems. Growth, including cysts, fibroids, dissolve and relieves the pain. Dry mouth, sore throat, swollen glands, bad coughs, reducing and inhibiting tumors and growth of the mouth and throat. Flowers add a sweetness to life. Books. The Healing Wisdom of Africa by Maladoma Patrice Somay, where much of the inspiration and many of the words for today's chat came from. The Elves of Lily Hill Farm, a partnership with nature. One woman's story from non-belief to belief and how her life changed so wondrously by Penny Kelly. Build Your Own Barrel Oven by Max and Eva Edelson. It's time to think again about outdoor cooking and gatherings. This barrel oven is just that, a centerpiece, as well as a functional way to be outdoors and cook pizzas, to pies, to meats, casseroles, and bread. It's a really fun, fun thing. 
So in closing, I would like to say that uh, that we are the solution. We are the solution. We are the solution. It's time for us to make our stand, as it were. No one outside is coming or going to heal what is ours to do and heal. Create life anew. Follow the heart of the ritual. Rebalance. Reunite. Rekindle. Make new. Burn away the lies and live the truth. Burn away the lies and live the truth. There is really no other choice at this time. Though the road is rough, together we can navigate our way forward, hand in hand, community to community, person to person. This is the way of the heart. Never doubt that a small group of concerned, committed citizens can make a difference. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. That's by Margaret Mead. And remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com.
and you're listening to Revolution with High C. I once again want to extend my gratitude to Mejd Murad for having joined me and for having shared uh, his life story and uh, as well as the work and the insights around theater and his work in the theater. So my thank you to Mejd Murad. Uh, this brings us to the portion of our show where we offer you, the listener, the opportunity to call in and receive a reading live here on the air. Uh, if you would like a reading, the way to get into the queue for that is to either Skype in from the show page or to call 646-716-5510. So we're going to go ahead and go to who we have calling in. And this is someone who is calling in from area code 858. Hello. Hi, hi, C. How are you? Good. Can you tell us what your name is and where you're calling from? My name is Anne. I'm from California. I have a question. We won't be interrupted with you in a few minutes because I believe there is like certain limit (laughs) when Uh, the show can... No, we're we're okay. We're okay. Okay. So, do you would you like me to ask my question? Sure. Yeah, I have a question. What do you see for me in my love life, love department? I don't mean just dating, but significant relationship with someone. So, are we looking at a particular relationship, or you're just wondering in general well, what your love life I looks hopes like? I have for a particular person, but it doesn't seem that things are going anywhere. So, I don't know either this person will be more available and things will develop or something else. But at this point, I don't see any movement in. All right, then with it's this, probably with that particular person. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's probably best that we start to look at the the bigger picture of your love life yeah. rather than uh-huh. too focused on one person. Um, I will say astrologically that this month um, mm-hmm. there is there's a lot of energy because of Venus being in Aries. There's a lot of energy that is swirling and stimulating around love and relationships especially in the idea of passion, desire, fired up for things. So there's a sense of the the thrill of the chase that, you know, people are feeling kind of that heat of summer that's coming, which kind of gets people out there and gets them a little frisky and randy, if you will. Um, so this can be a really good month for circulating, for getting ourselves out there, for meeting people and, and um, being able to see and experience sparks developing between people that we meet because it seems in a general sense everybody is a little bit fired up about (laughs) um, engaging and uh, finding people and and being in relationship and that kind of thing. So it's a good time to be out and about. Um, And then looking at the particular cards that have come up for your love life, um, well, there are some nice indications here because <laughs> a lot of the cards that have come up, just to indicate, because we're looking at kind of your love life overall, a lot of your uh, cards that are coming up are indicating uh, there's kind of a common theme that comes through, which is the idea of finding a soulmate, of living happily ever after, of um, 
long-term relationship, marriage, like one of the cards here, Ten of Cups often indicates marriage and that kind of thing. So it seems as if there is still significant relationship uh, for you to experience and for you to have in your life. Um, there is perhaps an indication Let that it will come. Let me ask you this way, I see, because uh, it didn't work to meet new people. I was trying to meet new people. It didn't work out. So you see the significant relationship may develop with someone I know already. This particular person or someone else will come with, uh, on my path that can be because I meet people I, most of the time uh, each month but you know it just didn't work out <laughs> as a relationship well, right so well first of all I wouldn't necessarily see this as somebody old I, I would see this as something that we're moving towards meaning somebody or something new rather than something that we're revisiting um, and and the fact that you've met people but it hasn't worked out could indicate that it just wasn't right timing um, in the bigger scheme of the timing for how your life needs to unfold. And what this is indicating here is that you're moving much closer to that right timing. Um, because the, the lover's card is here, which can indicate uh, synchronicity, which goes right to that idea of right timing. Um, and it is the card of Gemini, so I would pay attention in particular to people that you may meet um, or take advantage of opportunities to uh, put yourself out there to meet new people um, during Gemini, which is going, it's coming up, it's May 20th to June 20th. So that time frame. And I'm I will Gemini also, myself. <laughs> well, so. I'm Gemini myself, yeah. Well, yeah. and that's, that's. That okay. that can mean that the energy of that time period is doubly strong for you because it's both your sun sign energy and it's the card that's coming up and that would be the time period it indicates. To um, May 20th to June 1st especially is a really good window of time for initiating things, for getting things moving forward, for making things happen. So I would in particular highlight trying to be out and meeting people and interacting with people during the last half of May because that's probably going to be a very significant I was going to tell factor. you a high C this month actually was not the month for me unfortunately when I could go out and meet people there happened a lot of there is there was a lot of stressful events happened in with health with family members and their health so honestly do you see that things will improve because I even physically not able to do anything else but just taking care of people's health, taking care of my own health problems? Um, well, yes, and, Th things are going to improve um, because we have both the King of Cups here, which is the card of healing or the healer, so that it, that it encourages us that we are we are moving towards healing or we're on the the healing path. Um, and Ten of Cups is here, which is Cups is also that suit of healing. So there's that sense that Ten is ultimate fulfillment of something. So again, and the Ten of Cups, so the Ten of Cups, well, before I say that, just even if you're not getting out and about during this mm -hmm. month, between May 20th and June 1st in particular, but even extending May 20th to June 20th for the whole Gemini time period, just... Mm -hmm stay aware and pay attention to who you cross paths with or who you may happen to meet. Because that, that lover's card is very much synchronicity because it's like we just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So it's like we 
strike up a conversation with somebody that was standing behind us in the line at the coffee house. And it ends up, you know, becoming something that we're dating them or whatever. But it's just because we happen to decide to go get yeah. coffee on that day. So just pay attention during that time period to what may seem like coincidental, synchronistic or random meetings, crossing of paths and that kind of thing, because there is something about those that may actually end up becoming something later. It may not happen right away. It may mean that it takes a little while and then the person calls you back, you know, you exchange information and then three months later they call you back or something like that. But it's during that time period that the initial interaction is extremely important. So make sure you take action when that happens. Yeah. Give people your phone number. You know, don't okay. expect them to call the next day, but make sure that you've given yeah. them your phone number or your email or whatever it is that you choose yeah, to give sure them. Yeah, sure, I will. So I, I had some tests done last week. You think that I, I should be more optimistic, right? Because this particular month was very difficult health-wise. And family members got into the hospital and I had to do some tests that they even didn't plan to do. So you think that things will be going in a more positive direction for me, right? Well, the, the cards that are here, so what's the, what's the actual day of your birthday? The 31st. Of May? Yes. Okay. So... Because honestly, my life was all around um, that health issue that came out out of blue. And I didn't even have, I, I could go and meet people. I could go and join people for social meetings. I couldn't do anything. I postponed. Well, so I'm shuffling the cards because I'm going to pull cards separately for the health question because the cards I had were specifically around the love life, so we don't want to confuse the two. Um, the, but the last thing that I wanted to say about the love life cards is that, um, well, there's two things. One, the last card is the tower card, so that could show that we it the tower card is often like the the love at first sight card. So, it can mean that we suddenly meet someone and boom, it kind of develops into something or it happens quickly or all of a sudden. Um I would also think because of what you just mentioned about your health issues, a lot of what this is indicating is that you may actually end up meeting someone as a result of the health issues, meaning somebody that you're sitting next to in a doctor's you know, waiting room or somebody that you encounter when you're doing something related to your health uh, issues. So I would also pay attention to people that you um, meet uh, and come across uh, when you're specifically doing something that is related to your health issues, which could be as simple okay. as somebody waiting in line. Hi, see, let me pharmacy. understand. So in other words, you're trying to say it's going to be someone you someone whom I meet unexpectedly. It's not someone who actually I have established connection and kind of uh, friendship. It's not someone like this, right? Because things last month were very good with this person, and then one of a sudden everything has stopped, just stopped with nothing, no email, no no phone calls, nothing. And I I, I don't know, just... It just—it was upsetting also because I had hopes, you know, the way things were moving and where everything was looking so fun and romantic, and then everything has stopped. And now you're saying that so there is no connection to that person right anymore. So there will be someone new. Uh, right. The the only thing that I would say about that person is 
if they suddenly contacted you between May 20th and June 20th during the Gemini period, if they suddenly contacted you out of the blue, like you hadn't sent them a note to say, oh, just thinking about you or, you know, trying to prompt them to contact you, if they suddenly contact you during that time period, then I would pay attention to that. Otherwise, if it doesn't happen, then what this is really pointing to is somebody new. Okay. It's okay, and um, thank you so much for your reading. I really appreciate everything. But in general, you feel that things are going in a more positive direction with my life, right? Uh, Certainly with the love life, and then when I pulled cards for the health situation, you know, the, the first card that came up is the Nine of Swords reversed. And so the reversal of that says it's not as bad as we think. Okay. So there, there is a sense that we may have kind of um, pushed ourselves to the point of exhaustion or burnout or breakdown or something. Exactly so, what happened to me. I was exhausted with so many bad, not bad news, but it was not like bad news, but something like had suspicions and, you know, it made me kind of nervous. <laughs> right. And so what you have to look at is, in a sense, you kind of pushed yourself to that point. And therefore, mm-hmm. the health issues that are happening right now are a result of that, but there are certainly things that can be dealt with. And then you have to simply recognize how you got yourself to that point so that you don't let yourself push your own self over the edge again and create health problems for yourself. But what's coming up is that these are issues right now are things that can be dealt with, that can be healed, if you want to use that word, um, and will probably be able to do so within three months or less. So it's not so going to take very it's long. it's not as bad as it, as it looks. Maybe I even don't have anything. Maybe I'm okay, but they decided to, to run some tests last week. Uh, so you think right. I should hope for positive outcome, right? So maybe it's nothing serious, right? Right. Yeah, it's, okay, it's not as bad so. as you think, which means it's probably not as serious as you think it is, or it's not as serious as they might have been concerned that it is, just based on symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. It, it, it's, it's more a sense of, it, it's almost like saying it's, it's stress or exhaustion related. You know, it's just like if we've pushed ourselves beyond our limit. Um, and let's say that we get tired and run down and then we get sick. It may look it like pneumonia. It was something else that just, made them suspicious. It was not just stress, but something else that made the, this, the physician decided well, to double but, check. Yeah, and that's but why. I think that what they were suspicious mm-hmm. about was simply being inflamed or exacerbated by the stress levels that you were under. Okay. So it's not as bad as it may look because when we reduce the stress, it'll fix itself or or it'll reduce and go back down or be easily treatable. But if I won't meet anyone between May 20th and June 20th, it didn't indicate that there will be (laughs) romantic um, partnership for me. Yes, so even if I, if I won't meet anyone between this time frame, because it's only like one month left, and oh, I'm right. leaving, yeah. no, I'm no, leaving no. town I've... for about two weeks. I'm leaving town for about two weeks. It's a business trip at the end of May, so I'm not going to spend that time looking no, for any partnership. But it, it, is your business trip going to keep you in a cave? You're still going to be interacting with people. Well, I, so... I won't be alone there, so that's why uh, it's out of question. You know, I, I'm going, going with a group of people that probably I won't be able to do anything in a romantic level. Well, no, but, it, but, uh... that, but, but don't worry about such grand things because this mm-hmm. is more about you may end up sitting next to somebody at a dinner that you really strike up a conversation with and, and say, you know, I'd really love to 
talk to you more. I'd really love to go to dinner, you know, just the two of us, and you exchange information. What this is saying is this is a really good time to pay attention to whenever that happens because making sure you've exchanged information and that you have created the possibility for continued interaction you take advantage of. And again, it doesn't have to happen. Thank you so much. I I see I, I'm sorry to my my family is calling and my mom is calling. She wants she okay. she made reservations. But thank you so much. I really appreciate your help. I'm so sorry, but my mom she's no, on the phone okay. and she's asking where where am I? <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. I enjoy your programs and your readings. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thanks. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. And that will bring us to the close of our show. Thank you very much for once again listening. This has been Revolution with High C. And I'm here for this show every second Sunday of each month at 10.30 a.m. here on Blog Talk Radio. And you can always listen to the archives here on Blog Talk. Any of our past shows, whether it's this show or any of the other shows, um, you can also find us on iTunes. Just do a search for Firefly Willows Live, or you can search Revolution. Um, And I would invite you to join me and my co-host, Charlie Harrington, this coming Tuesday for the Amethyst Oracle Divination with a Queer Twist. We're very excited. We're going to have one of the luminaries in the world of tarot and divination uh, who has written many books and has been working in that realm for 30 some years and um, we're just really excited Mary Kay Greer so if you are available and would like to listen into that feel free to join us on Tuesday at 8pm so join me here next time for Revolution on the second Sunday of each month I will be back for Revolution on Sunday June 8th at 10.30am until then May blessings and surprises be around every corner for you. Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a Queer Twist with Heisey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington. Tuesday evening at 8 p.m.